Amen. 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 Thank you, Amy. Thank you, team. Uh, let me just have a word before I bring the message. Next Sunday, we have this annual time in which we thank God for those who have served this great country and pray God's blessing upon our nation. And it's a great gift that God has given us as a people who live in this great country. So I hope you're going to come, that uh, you bring friends with you. We're going to honor all the five branches of the military. And then I've got a message that God laid on my heart very heavily. How shall we live in this kind of a culture in which we live in that's become so anti-Christian? And so I hope they're going to come and bring friends with you. I hope you turn to Romans 16. And that, thank God, David is half Greek, so he can pronounce all those names. <laughs> I'm not going to pronounce them. I'm not going to get to them, but I will get to the point of why they're there. But before I bring the message, I was thinking about the whole theme of, of, of Romans 16, and I, I was thinking, and my mind went back to a story I read many, many years ago that actually a true story that took place back in the late 1800s in the county of Mayfield, uh, Kentucky. And it was there a small church at that time, very small. In fact, it was so small they only had two deacons in that church. But those two deacons really hated each other. <laughs> I mean, they always opposed each other. Uh, these two deacons always fought with each other. And one particular Sunday, one of those deacons decided that he is going to put on the back wall a wooden peg on which the pastor, when he comes in, he can hang his hat. Well, when the other deacon found that out, he was completely bent out of shape. How can this happen without my being consulted? How can it? And then the whole congregation, tiny as it was, got all bent out of shape, and they took sides. And that led to a church split. The new church that was formed, the departing church, called themselves the Anti-Peg Baptist Church. In fact, this is more real than you think. In Romans 14, we saw together, those of you who are here, we saw how the Apostle Paul warns us against being bent out of shape and get all hot and bothered over non-essentials, over things unnecessary for salvation. And so he comes to Romans 16 and in this epistle, which is the final in the series that we've been going through for the last six months, and he says, in effect, that while you should not get uh, distracted, don't get bent out of shape, don't waste your time, don't waste your life on things that are not necessary for salvation, but instead, what you really should do, you should guard against false teaching. And that's exactly what he said. Verse 17, look at verse 17 with me. I urge you, brethren, to watch out for those who cause, you division, cause division and hold contrary teaching to the truth of the gospel. Now, here's a use of interpretation, not translation, but interpretation. 
It's saying if you're going to get bent out of shape and if you're going to get hot and bothered about something, do it over serious matters. Do it over very important issues for the gospel and for Christ and for His Word and for biblical truth. As I said, as I bring this series of messages to a close, I want to show you from this chapter three very important characteristics for everyone who is serious about being the disciple of Jesus. Three things. uh, If you're taking notes, write them down. Don't forget them. First of all, we see in verses 1 to 16 that a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ has to have a loving heart. And then in verses 17 to 20, verse 20, he says that disciple has to have a protective heart. And thirdly, in verses 21 to 27, he says the disciple of Jesus Christ has to have a grateful heart, a thankful heart. Let's look at these very quickly. Having a loving heart. Now, this long of list of names that you, I'm sure you're scratching your head about when it was being read, the long, long list that Paul mentions here, particularly the first 16 verses, and then he mentioned more later, this is a clear indication that Paul cared deeply about each individual person, not just as a group. Uh, no doubt, Paul prayed for these believers by name uh, and, and, and in the cities that he has been to. And, and, and this one, actually, he hasn't been to yet. Paul did not fall in the trap or said, God bless everyone everywhere. You know what I'm talking about, the kind of prayer? God bless everyone everywhere. Well, God bless those people in Ephesus. Or God bless those people in Corinth. Or God bless those people in the church of Rome. No. He focuses on individuals within the churches, even the ones he hasn't been to yet, like Rome. Now, here in this chapter, he names 33 names and two households. 24 of these are in Rome, the church he hasn't visited. It's enough for me to capture all my inferiority complexes. When it comes to names, I try very hard. There are 17 men, seven women, and all mentioned by name. Not just names, but knowledge uh, of each person. In the last message, Paul, we saw it clearly, while he is so grateful to the Lord for using him, and yet he gave all of the glory to me. To whom? Christ. He gave all of the credit to Christ. Sure, God helped him accomplish so many things, and yet he comes here to chapter 16 almost without even taking a breath from chapter 15, and then he says, guess what? While all of the credit goes to the Lord, while all of the glory goes to the Lord, while God did it all, and yet, and yet I could not have done it without all these people, all the partners in the ministry, these wonderful fellow believers. And he was, in the, in the sense, overwhelmed, not only with the grace of God, but with the commitment and the loving dedication of the believers in every city. You know, when I spend time alone with God, and I begin to think and thank Him for what He has done in this place, 
for 31 years, His graciousness, the dark days and the light days and the good days and the hard things and the easy things. And I, I begin to thank the Lord for every Bible teacher by name. I begin to thank Him for every home uh, leader, Bible study home leader by name. I, I begin to thank Him for the leaders of the various ministries that goes on in this church between Sundays, which some people are even not aware of. And here Paul is saying that to be effective in the work of God in the ministry in any church, the church has to have a loving heart, a loving heart. Beloved, listen to me. Without the manifestation of our love for one another, we would just be another institution. I thank God for the emails and the letters I get from visitors who come, and they say, we came to apostles, and we, we found such loving congregation, welcoming congregation. I thank God for you every day. That is what sets the church apart, love for God and for His Word, but love for one another as well. Now, the sad part is that uh, many, in many cases, the church is cold, in fact, colder than the world. And you've probably been to some of those churches. I have. Um, and Paul is saying that a church must show affection. Must show affection. When he talks about holy kiss, and of course that takes different expression in different cultures, but nonetheless, the point is that Bible-believing Christians must be warm and affectionate toward each other. And that's why I thank God deeply for the loving people in this church. And I know them by name. And and I was thinking about this, and I began to contrast you, the loving congregation, with a story that a dear friend of mine just sent me not long ago. And it's a story of a dear lady by the name of Gladys Dunn. Gladys decided to move cities, and she got to a new city because she wanted to be in a particular retirement home, and she decided to look around when she got there the first day. She began to ask about churches and they told her about the nearby church where she could attend, and sure enough, it wasn't too many blocks away, so on a beautiful sunny day, she decided to walk. And so she goes to the church, and the beautiful building, liked the music, but she thought the sermon was really boring. I mean, she couldn't even understand what the guy talking about. And as she looked around in the congregation, she noticed a lot of people were nodding off during the sermon. I mean, you know what I'm talking about? No, you don't do that here, because I'm going to wake you up. <laughs> one time, many years ago, I said to a friend, man was actually one of our leaders, and I said, are you tired? That was at the end of the service. He said, why? He said, I said, you yawned six times. He's, from that moment on, he began to sit behind a tall person. <laughs> so I can't see him. We're dear old Gladys. She was looking around and seeing all these people nodding off, and and, and then there was a man particularly next to her. He was not nodding off. He was having a deep sleep. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, he was really enjoying a good, deep sleep. And she didn't know what to do. She, she just uh, kept looking at him every now and again. And, and then at the end of the service, the pastor said, before you go out, let's be friendly with one another. I want you to turn around to the person next to you, and I want you to stretch your hand and shake their hand and introduce yourself. So Gladys Dunn goes into the guy next to her who's been asleep the whole time, 
put her, her hand out, and she said, I am glad it's done. And the man said, I'm glad it's done too. <laughs> Having a loving heart. Secondly, having a protective heart. In our 21st century church, among Christians, and you know what I'm talking about, most people are fine with that loving heart bit, and I'm going to explain to you why. But they balk at the thought of having a protective heart. That it's just they don't like that bit. Why? Because they have lowered the meaning of the word love to the point with just mere sentimentality. It, it doesn't mean much. The everything goes type thing. That's what the, they mean by love. At the recent British royal wedding, uh, some of you might have watched it, the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church preached a sermon on love. And he was extolling the power of love, 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 love. Never told you who the source of love is. But you see, I know, that, <laughs> I know that kind of thinking. I was part of that thinking for five or six years. And here's how they really explain it away. This is how they think. They're not talking about biblical love. That's not what they're talking about. Here's how they extrapolate it. The Bible said, they don't believe the Bible, but they like to use it if, they, if it works to their advantage. The Bible said that God is love. Right? So far, so good. Ah, then it must be love is God. That's how they think. I have been there many times, trust me. <laughs> um, that, that, and even by love, they don't mean agape, the purest form of biblical love. No, 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 no. Uh, uh, because agape love includes warning people, includes exhorting people, it includes correcting people, but that's not what they mean by love. To them, love means live and let live. It means no wrong, no sin. It means uh, no falsehoods and no biblical immorality. Beloved, this is a totally, total contradiction of biblical truth. Look at verse 17 with me again, Romans 16. I urge you, brethren, to watch out for those who cause division. Why? By preaching falsehoods. By not telling the truth, the full truth, as it's found in the Gospels. By embracing things that are contrary to biblical truth. By winking at teachings that causes many in the pews to be lulled into sin without conviction. And they call that love. Now, beloved... It is the nature of biblical love. It is the nature of biblical love to warn against harm to those whom they love. You agree with me? I mean, it's, it's, part of, it's, it's part of the nature of genuine love is to warn. If I'm going to see somebody jumping for myself, I'm going to say, please don't do that. <laughs> You're going to get injured. <laughs> but what is that greatest harm that you warn people against? The undermining of God's truth. That's the greatest warning you can give somebody. Hear me right. Love always, listen, always, always, 
always forgives all evil. I don't care what it is. Forgives all evil. But love does not ignore or condone evil, especially inside the family of God, inside the church of Jesus. The mark of maturity in the Christian faith is to discern the mind of the Holy Spirit, who authored the Bible, is to discern the mind of the Holy Spirit, not one's own fancy, one's own ideas. No, why? Because this is His business. We are workers for Him. We are not in business for ourselves. This is God's business. The church is God's business. And I've said this for many, many times. In fact, I do it most about every January with a new vestry. I remind him over and over and over again. For 31 years, we always came to the Lord and say, Lord, we all have good ideas, but we're not here to expand our ideas. We're here to seek the mind of the Holy Spirit. And once we discern the mind of the Holy Spirit, we want to obey it. You see, this is his business. It's not ours. In fact, the Greek word that Paul uses here for keeping an eye on those who embrace falsehood or those who proclaim falsehood, the, the word is scopio, from which we get the root word for telescope or, or microscope. That, that's the root word. In days gone by, we used to exhort pastors, protect the flock of God, protect them from falsehoods, protect the people of God. And we would say that even like even Paul himself in Acts chapter 20, when he was saying goodbye to the elders in Ephesus, and he warned them, he exhorted them, he said, protect the flock of God, protect the people of God. Ah, uh, what is happening today at this moment of history in which we live, we don't do that anymore, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> Because now the pastors are the ones who are misleading the flock of God. Now we have to protect the flock from false preachers and pastors. There are pastors who twist the text of the Scripture almost like a pretzel. And they twist every text in the Scripture to fit their own theory of prosperity gospel. Every text. There are pastors who twist the text of the Scripture in ways that becomes uh, 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 unrecognizable to make people feel that salvation depends on the power of positive thinking. Uh, there are pastors today who twist the text of the Scripture uh, in order to deny the relevance of the Old Testament. We're seeing it all over the place. The list goes on and on and on. Remember what happened to the proverbial frog in the kettle. You know, if you put a frog in boiling water, the frog will jump out. But if you put a frog in a room temperature water and then slowly turn the heat, slowly turn the heat, the frog won't feel it. The frog won't recognize it. The frog won't know that this is killing it. And that's exactly what is happening. I have known wonderful Bible-believing Christians 
who sat under this diet of, of, of falsehood, who sat under this kind of false preaching year after year after year, and the slow heat going up and up and up, and now, years later, they are denying the scriptural truth. I know it breaks the hearts of their family members and friends and loved ones, but they can't see it. Do you know why they can't see it? Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. <laughs> because long ago, they have become fans of the pastor, not Jesus. Long ago, they became followers of the pastor, not Jesus. Long ago, they became enamored by the pastor and not Jesus. And since I started, let me finish. I'm going to say the whole thing. I'm going to turn the whole bag upside down. <laughs> oh, all of this that they're caught up in, and I'm telling you right now because it works, it takes years for this to happen. And I'm telling you right now, listen to me. Are you listening? Say amen. Because I want you to hear me right on this one. For the last 31 years, I have said it, I'll say it till the Lord takes me home. Never be a fan of Michael Youssef. Never follow Michael Youssef. Never refer to this church as Michael Youssef's church. We only want to follow who? Jesus. We only want to love whom? Jesus. We want to be the fans of who? Jesus. We only want to be lovers of whom? Jesus. We only be, want to be worshipers of whom? Jesus. We only want to be enamored by? Jesus. Amen belongs here. Amen. Question. Why does Paul say that these false teachers divide? Beloved, I'm going to answer that. Listen carefully. Because in the church of Jesus Christ, we have only one true bond. We come from different backgrounds. We're young and old and in everything in between. We come from different ethnic backgrounds. We different, maybe even different nationalities in this church. But we only all have one bond, only one bond, which binds us together. Only one bond we have, and that is the truth of the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit who wrote the Word of God. The Spirit of Jesus and the Word of Jesus, the Word of God, is what binds us together as a church. You know, not to be alert to the falsehoods and, and, and warning others against these falsehoods would be like a shepherd who watches the wolf coming, wolves coming in, devouring his sheep, and he says, and does nothing. It would be a builder who worked hard to build a building, and then he sees somebody tearing that building apart, and he says, and does nothing. Do you know the one thing that the wolves absolutely afraid of? <laughs> now, this is cultural thing. I'm giving it to you from my background. The one thing the wolf is, 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 is afraid of is the watchdog. <laughs> you know, the sheepdog, who's going to defend the sheep, protect the sheep at any cost. That's who the wolves don't like. So what are we supposed to do? Verse 18, thank God I don't have to answer that. The Bible does. We are to withhold fellowship from such individuals who divide us by false teaching. Listen, there are some Christians who think that we are supposed not to have fellowship with the world, 
that we should not have anything to do with people, them non-believing people. That is utter falsehood. It's not in the Scripture. You read the Corinthian passage. You read here. No. Otherwise, how is the world going to know Jesus and come to believe in Him other than through us? So that's not whom we're supposed to break fellowship with. We should be in the world, but not of it. We are to witness. We are the light. We are the salt. Ah. But the fellowship is to be broken with the professing Christian who deliberately proclaim falsehood. We're to break fellowship of a sinning believer who refuses to repent. Look at verse 18 again. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, their own fancies. Smooth talking, flattering. They deceive the mind of the naive people. They make their own rules as they go along. Uh, they make their own principles as they go along. They, they, they place their own interpretation above the Word of God itself. They use their own rationale and go against the Word of God. I'm going to say something to you without an iota of flattery or self-serving. I am indebted to the mature believers in this church. God knows the truth of what I'm saying. God is my witness. I'm indebted to the wisdom of so many people in the leadership of this church. Like Paul, I could say in verse 19, I rejoice over you. Look at verse 19. Be wise in what is good, but innocent in what is evil. What does that mean? What does that mean? Listen carefully. It means that you are so familiar with the truth of the Word of God uh, that you know what is good and what is true. And you get to know it so much and so well that as soon as you see a, a, a falsehood, you recognize it immediately. And you immediately not only recognize it, but abhor it, not wink at it, uh, not accommodate to it, uh, not pretend that it's not there, no. Why? Because when alert believers get united together under the Word of God, you know what they are doing? They are trampling Satan underfoot. That's what they do. That's the Word of God here. Ah, oh, but the day is coming. <laughs> I'm going to get to this in a minute. But the day is coming when Satan completely going to be trampled under our feet. Now, this is not see Jesus, because he already trampled. Jesus trampled him under feet. See, when Jesus went to the cross, he crushed his head. When Jesus died on that cross, he crushed Satan's head. And now Jesus gives power to the believers to defeat him. But we also look forward longingly to the day when our spiritual war is over, when those who are instruments of Satan who disseminating falsehood will be judged when faithful believers are going to be rewarded. Listen to me. So don't be discouraged, my beloved friends. Don't be discouraged. Don't give up. For soon and very soon, and maybe sooner than any of us think, we are going to see our victorious Jesus, and He's going to be crushing Satan under our feet. Come on. I want you to do that. 
where you sit. You don't have to stand up. Just, just stamp your feet. Do that. Do that with me. Stamp your feet. That's right. Let the hell hear it. Let Satan hear it. Because that's what's going to happen to him. He's going to be crushed under our feet. Satan is the one who tempted us. Satan is the one who caused us to occasionally fail and be defeated. Satan is the one who deceives us. Satan is the one who harasses us. Satan is the one who constantly uh, troubling us. Satan is the one who constantly trying to convince us that we're standing alone. Everybody has given up. You might as well give up too. That Satan, soon and very soon, is going to be trampled under our feet. Praise God. Praise God. Having a loving heart, having a protective heart, finally having a grateful heart. You know, one of the saddest things I see across the world, actually, not just in the West, is that gratitude and thankfulness is becoming a rare species. I was reading something on Facebook from the Middle East, of all places, and talking about how a generation gone by, people were so hospitable, they were kind. And they were always filled with thanks, regardless of whether they had something or they didn't have it. He said, today, that gratitude has gone out the window. And think about it. It's not happening only in the West. It's all over. Gratitude is a rare, rare species. Look at verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden long past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, uh, so that all nations might believe and obey him. Question, what is that mystery? What is that mystery? that Paul is talking about. And he talked about it in Ephesians as well. Was kept secret long ago, now manifest. Well, actually, it's twofold. It's like two-edged sword. (laughs) One side is the fact that God became man. That's a mystery. And to this day, many of our Muslim friends have said, no, 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 that can't happen. How can God become man? That's why it's a mystery to them. They never understand it. They they will never understand it unless God opened their spiritual eyes. And the second part of that mystery is the fact that the Gentiles are going to come in the new covenant and be equal to the Jews in the sense they both are going to come under the covenant of grace, grace as one unit. That's the mystery. Even the disciples had a hard time in the early days of, of, of Acts. And the Gentiles coming in and becoming equal to us, you see, that wall of hostility has been, uh, has been destroyed, has been removed. Actually, in reality, it wasn't really a mystery. I'm going to tell, explain that to you. Uh, because some, very few, read about it in the Old Testament, and they understood it, and they comprehended it. Um, so it wasn't mysterious to some but it was too many. Some of them actually read it, but they didn't want to believe it. No way. The, the Gentiles are going to be equal to us? As a matter of fact, when I go to Israel and take some people with me, I, I, when I, I don't teach much uh, because I let the guides do this, but two places I insist on teaching because the guides will never understand. I'm going to explain it to you. One is when we're standing at the precipice, precipice looking down 
a very steep hill out of Nazareth. And every time I teach, the guides will come to me and say, never understood this before, never heard this before. Right. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes into the synagogue in Nazareth, and he grabs a scroll, and he opens it to a book of Isaiah and begins to read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because that's a prophecy about him, and on and on and on. And then he put the scroll down. He didn't react very much. He said, this Scripture now is fulfilled in your ears now, meaning I'm, I'm the one. Well, that didn't bother him so much. He said, okay, although a lot of people claim to be Messiah, let's just see. And the next thing he goes on to say, give them two examples from the Old Testament. Naaman, the general from Syria who was, lep- was filled with leprosy, and the, Shuna- and the Shunammite woman, and, and both were Gentiles. And he said, well, not many Jews have leprosy. But it was Naaman who was healed, a Gentile. And then the same thing with the, and man, they got so mad at him. What do you mean? The Gentiles are going to come and be equal with us? And that's when they took him, and they went up to this hill. And if you see him, he's very steep, and they want to throw him out. Can't possibly be. That's why Paul said, mystery. It was not understood, but now it is. Now you ask me what time it is. I've told you how to make a watch. But I wanted to explain this to you, to understand what it, that, how, how mysterious that was to them in the first century. You see, from God's point of view, this again and again and again was repeated in the Old Testament, but the people would not believe it. They would not understand it. It's repeated in Isaiah 53, 11, Jeremiah 31, 31, and 33, and it's Ezekiel eleven nineteen. just to give you a few samples. It's all over the Old Testament. But their spiritual blindness, they did not want to believe it. They did not want to believe that the Gentiles are going to be recipients of grace just like they are. Hear me right. I'm getting close to the end. Have I lost any of you yet? Praise God. (laughs) Now, you cannot read the epistles of Paul without recognizing that Paul was one grateful dude. He really, really, well, I mean, he, he would talk about all the torture and the stoning and the, and the, and the building and the, and the whipping and everything else that he'd been through the shipwreck. And then he's, I'm grateful to the Lord. <laughs> he's one grateful dude. He was not only grateful for his salvation, but he's also grateful for his sanctification. He was not only grateful for his redemption, but he also was grateful for the sustaining power of God during that time of earthly life. Paul repeatedly taught that our God does not only save us, but he sustains us in that salvation. Our God not only cleanses us when we come to him, but he continues on cleansing us day by day. Our God not only calls us, but he keeps us from permanently falling away. How do you know that? Again, thank God, it's not up to me to give you the answer. Next verse. Because the word established here, God establishes you being standing firm. I mean, absolutely firm, immovable. You're standing firm. He's the one establishing you. He's holding you firm on the rock of ages. Those who are united in the truth of Jesus Christ and the Word of God are people who are always firm in their faith. 
The wind will blow and the wind will howl and the wind will threaten, but they are immovable. They are firm. Um, on the other hand, those who cause division and dissension uh, are people who are being blown by every wind of doctrine. Well, whatever the latest thing that Dr. Smelfunga said, we go with it. Those who do not have their foundation on the infallible and inerrant Word of God, <laughs> these people are easily persuaded by every slick and smooth-talking preacher. Those who have no foundation will crumble every time there's a crisis. One thing I need to say before I finish, Paul said, my gospel. And a lot of people really stumble over that. What does that mean, my gospel? Is this his private gospel, his own private interpretation of the gospels? No. He's saying, I'm preaching the same gospel that Peter preached. I am preaching the same gospel that James preached. I am preaching the same gospel that John preached. I am preaching the same gospel that Jude preached. And he is saying here that that's exactly the gospel that I'm preaching. When you and I heard the gospel for the first time, remember that time? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I remember that day like yesterday. I'll never pray to God, never forget it. The first time when Christ brought us to himself and we responded to his invitation, God called fallen, corrupt, vacillating, drifting, insecure, uncertain, confused minds like mine, and he established us. Not for a day or two, but for all of eternity. God bless you. God took doomed souls and firmly established them on the truth. Establish. Again, what does it mean? Listen carefully. It means to stand firm against the temptation to drift and wander. And temptations are all around us. Beloved, listen to me. They are all around us. It means you have solid footing when everything and every other person that you know is drifting. It means that you are firm in your convictions and you refuse to be dragged into silly, self-serving arguments. Amen belongs here. Having a loving heart, having a protective heart, having a grateful heart, Beloved, that's my prayer for me, and it's my prayer for you, my daily prayer for each of you. So as I conclude this series from one of the greatest epistles in the New Testament, I couldn't think of better words. To, I could never improve on the Word of God, so I'm going to conclude with the word that Paul concludes the epistle with. To the only wise God, be glory forever and ever and ever through Jesus Christ. Amen and amen and amen. Give God glory. Give God glory. Stand up and give God glory. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you as your precious children. You love us. You gave the most precious thing to you, your son, to die on the cross for us.
you raised us from certain death into eternal life. We're so grateful for your word. We thank you for preserving it. So many people want to destroy it. So many people burned it. So many people tried to get rid of it through the years, but you preserved it and you kept it so that today, in this day, we can be here in, in this church praising you, lifting your name, glorifying you for your word. Encourage those who are discouraged. And Lord, I pray that you would humble the proud and the arrogant, because Father, we know that your word can do both. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen and amen. Thank you, guys.